Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Raycon for supporting my podcast, Get Crisp, Powerful Beats, at half the price of other premium brands. Raycon's offering you 15% off all their products. And here's what you've got to do to get the deals. Just go to buyraycon.com gold. Well, S&P and the Dow Jones both closed in new record high territory today. Now, I think the catalyst... Although, you know, I don't even think the market needs a catalyst to go up because it's riding a wave of cheap money. But the economic data points that I think provided a lift were the numbers that we got on the July CPI. Now, I've been talking about these CPI numbers all year. So far, we had six monthly numbers and every month exceeded expectations. In fact, sometimes the numbers came out so much higher than estimates that they weren't even within the range of estimates, meaning that the number ended up topping even the highest estimate that anybody had. Well, this time we finally got a CPI number that did not beat the forecast. It came in exactly as expected. Now, this was one of the higher numbers that was expected. The expectation was for a 0.5% number. So I think month after month of coming in too low, the estimates were a little higher. In fact, they ranged from 0.4 to 0.6. Remember, last month we had 0.9. So 0.5 was still quite a bit below 0.9, but still a relatively high monthly number. Well, we got 0.5. And in fact, the year over year number, which was 5.4 last month and was expected to notch up to 5.5, that actually was a miss. We only got 5.4. So not quite as high as forecast. And then when you strip out food and energy there, there was actually a miss The expectation was for a gain of 0.4, which followed a 0.9 rise in June. In July, those prices only went up 0.3, which matched the low end of the estimate range, which went from 0.3 to 0.6. Year-over-year, ex-food and energy, pretty much exactly as expected. 
4.3, an improvement on the 4.5 from the month prior. So again, this number came in in line with forecasts in sharp contrast to all of the other inflation numbers that we've gotten this year that have come out way above what people had expected. Now, of course, pretty much every time we saw an inflation number earlier this year that was worse than expected, meaning more inflation, the reaction in the gold market was that gold sold off because investors interpreted this higher than expected report caught on inflation to mean that the Fed would have to be tighter than everybody thought because inflation was a bigger threat than everybody thought. So ironically, gold was selling off. Well, same thing happened again as soon as this number came out and it wasn't worse than expected or maybe even a little bit cooler than expected. Gold immediately rallied and ended up closing about on the high of the day, up around $24. Still, gold is still at about $17.52 following a sell-off that I talked about last week and also early this week, which I'll get into a bit later in the podcast. But for now, I just want to focus on the fact that gold rallied when inflation was not worse than expected and sold off when it was worse than expected. Again, why are we having this seemingly counterintuitive reaction when gold as an inflation hedge, why is it doing worse when there's more inflation to hedge? You would think it would do better. And again, it comes down to expectations. It is what investors expect the Fed to do in reaction to the hotter than expected inflation numbers. Again, everybody still believes the Fed, at least all of the mainstream investors that control the lion's share of the investable money, they believe the Fed and they're not worried about inflation, even though it's here. What they're worried about is the Fed having to fight inflation. In fact, they're confident that the Fed is going to fight inflation. They believe that they will battle inflation by tapering their asset purchases and eventually ending the asset purchases altogether and by normalizing interest rates, raising rates from zero. And so since the Fed is going to fight inflation, investors don't want to fight the Fed. That is an age-old Wall Street adage, don't fight the Fed. And if the Fed is going to be fighting inflation, well, you don't want to own gold Because in that environment where you have the Fed tightening policy, everybody believes that that environment is bad for gold. And that's why the price of gold has been weak. That's also why gold stocks have been even weaker. Because remember, like all stocks, gold stocks don't reflect what investors think the price of gold is today. Gold stocks reflect investor expectations for the price of gold in the future. And since investors expect gold prices to sell off in the future, as the Fed is fighting inflation with a tighter monetary policy, they are discounting those lower gold prices and the lower earnings that they will produce for the miners into the current price of the gold mining stocks, which is why they are exceptional investment values right now, because investors are wrong. The future gold price is not only not going down, it's going to go up because the Fed is not going to fight inflation at all. It's probably going to surrender and inflation will win by default. But even if it tries to fight inflation, it will lose and inflation will win. And it is a fantastic environment for gold. You know, in fact, if you look at the CPI numbers that came out, if you just focus in on what's happened in 2021, year to date, so far, the CPI is up 4.2% in the first seven months of the year. So the Fed said that they were going to shoot for inflation that was slightly above 2%. Well, we're already at 4.2%. That's not slightly above 2%. That's more than double 2%. 
I mean, the Fed never really defined what it meant by an inflation that is slightly above 2%. I mean, what is that? 2.1, 2.2. I mean, yeah, that would be slightly above 2%. 2.5%, would that be slightly above? I don't know. I mean, 2.5 is closer to 3 than it is 2. I'm not even sure if that would have counted as slightly above, but maybe they could have gotten away with two and a half, but certainly anything above two and a half wouldn't be described as slightly. But clearly north of four, we've already doubled 2%. And again, we did it in seven months. There is five more months to go in this year. And in fact, if you annualize the first seven months of the year and just assume that this pace is what we get for the next five, we're going to have 7.2% inflation in 2021. Clearly, nobody can define that as slightly above. It's more than triple 2%. I mean, it's getting close to quadruple. And in fact, the numbers would actually be a lot worse if we were honestly measuring inflation. You know, I keep reading stuff on the internet in articles that are being written trying to go out of their way to remind everybody that we're nowhere near the inflation rates of the 1970s when we are very near. In fact, I think if we measured inflation today using the same CPI that we used to measure inflation in the 1970s, this year could end up being a worse year than any single year during the 1970s. Remember, early in the 70s, When we got wage and price controls, it was when inflation first got above 4% that really sparked a panic. Well, we left 4% in the dust uh, where we are now. As I said, we're already beyond 4% just in the first seven months of the year. But if we were using the 1970s CPI, the annualized rate, I think, would already be well north of 10%. I think it would be probably higher than any individual year during that entire decade or the early part of the 1980s. One of the reasons is the use of owner's equivalent rent instead of actual rent, right? The government is claiming that rents are barely rising. It's a third of the CPI. Of course, there are other housing expenses that are part of the CPI too that are understated. But rents is a third and they're using owner's equivalent rent. Owner's equivalent rent is a rent that nobody actually pays. It's a number that's been made up. And obviously, they're making up a low number. But if you look at private sources that are reporting on actual rents that they're seeing advertised on their websites or leases that are being signed, actual rents are up. I forget what the number was, 12% year over year, 15% year over year. It is a huge number. Imagine what the CPI would be at if that number was being used as one third of the CPI, right? Because right now, owner's equivalent rent being so low is actually dragging down the CPI. You pull out owner's equivalent rent and that number goes up. But if we stuck in actual rents, then the number would go way up because it would bring up the average because rents are actually rising faster than the overall CPI in real terms. And as I spoke on my last podcast, rents would be going up even more, but for the eviction moratorium, because all these landlords that have deadbeat tenants who aren't paying any rent because they can't be evicted, well, the landlords aren't raising the rents on those apartments because they can't. I mean, they can't get any rent, and so they can't raise the rent. But once they're allowed to evict these tenants, or the tenants are in default of their lease, and they decide to keep the tenant, they're not going to keep them at the old rent. Rents are going to go way up on all of these units where the landlords are currently collecting no rent. So once this moratorium ends, that's going to add to the upward pressure on rents that already exists. Plus, of course, you have so many other factors that are being diminished by the methodology of computing the CPI. So everybody who's saying we have nothing to worry about because it's not as bad as the 1970s, it actually may already be worse 
than the 1970s. And the bigger problem is we're early on. This is just getting started. So when you compare the inflation rate that we're getting now at the beginning of the cycle to the inflation rates we got back in the 70s at the end of the cycle, you can only imagine how much worse it's going to get when this cycle eventually tops out. Now, in the meantime, not a lot of coverage is being given to the Fed's changing of the meaning of transitory. You know, I talked about it on the podcast, but I don't really hear many other people talking about it because when the Fed initially started talking about transitory inflation, the idea was that transitory meant temporary. That, hey, we're going to go through a few months where prices go up as the economy is reopening. But then once it's reopened and everything comes back to normal, those temporarily high prices will come back down to normal. And so it's just a transitory period where we have to deal with high prices. Well, the Fed has already completely changed its tune there and has now defined transitory to apply only to the rate of inflation, not the prices. The Fed has now admitted that the price increases that we are experiencing, they're not transitory. They're here to stay. Those increases are permanent. All the Fed is saying is that after these permanent increases go into effect, future inflation will go back to the 2% level that we had before. So that means that the increase in the cost of living is not transitory, it's permanent. And the hope is by the Fed that after we get a big increase in our cost of living, the cost of living will continue to go up from that elevated level, but at the same rate that it was before we had this transitory period of high inflation, which to me completely destroys any credibility that the Fed has in claiming that they've successfully contained inflation at 2%. Because if you're just going to focus on the years where it's 2%, and then if you get these sporadic years where you have you know, 7%, 10%, 15%, and then just claim that that's transitory and not count it, and you only want to count the years where it's close to 2%, but throw out all the years where it's much greater and then claim that you're successful, you have to average those transitory periods in with all the other periods and see what the average inflation rate is over time. And when we do that, we're already well above uh, 2%, and the Fed has no chance of anchoring inflation expectations at 2%. And the markets still haven't figured that out. In fact, look at the productivity numbers that came out yesterday. We had a big disappointing number for Q2 productivity. Analysts had expected a rise of 3.5%. Instead, productivity grew by just 2.3%, way below expectations, and a sharp deceleration from the 5.4% growth in Q1. That's actually a 60% decline in productivity growth. But productivity is important because not only is that the only way to raise real wages is by workers becoming more productive, but increased productivity can counteract the effect that inflation has on prices. Because as the Fed prints more money that people can use to buy stuff, If the economy produces more stuff to buy, that additional supply can work to offset the inflationary demand and so limit the price increases. But to the extent that we're getting less productivity, that is a further problem for the Fed and is more evidence of the permanent nature of what we are experiencing when we come to inflation and the threat that it does portend. But again, the big thing for the metals market and for the dollar market is for investors to understand that it really doesn't matter what these numbers are. If traders were somehow relieved that today's inflation numbers that weren't hotter than expected, if it takes some pressure off the Fed when it comes to its tightening campaign, it doesn't matter. The Fed can't tighten. The Fed has got itself into a box. If the Fed could tighten, it would have done it already. If the Fed could fight inflation, it would already be in the battle. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The fact that it's not fighting it now, the fact that it's taking a chance and hoping that the problem is solved on its own shows you that they have absolutely no ability to fight inflation. They're saying they don't want to fight it because they don't want to risk hurting the economy. Well, hell, if they think it would hurt the economy to fight inflation now, how much more pain will it inflict on the economy if they have to fight an even bigger inflation monster later? So it makes no sense that they would make such a risky bet unless they thought they had no alternative because they can't fight inflation now either because it's already too big to be fought. So all they can do is pretend and hope that they can somehow delay the inevitable simply with their words because they have no ability to act. In fact, on CNBC I was watching today, after these numbers came out, Steve Leisman was interviewing Dallas Fed Chair Robert Kaplan about inflation. And he specifically said that he was hearing a lot about how the Fed is not really a friend to the average guy, that maybe the Fed is helping the rich with their assets and the stock market, but that whatever wage gains workers were getting in the economy were being undermined by inflation, that prices were rising faster than wages. And so everybody is actually going backwards. They're swimming against the tide here because the Fed is abiding this higher inflation and not doing anything about it. And it's not that the Fed is abiding by the higher inflation. Like it's just sitting there like an innocent bystander and just not acting to try to fight inflation. The Fed is actively creating the inflation, right? It's not just a neutral party. Its policies are inflationary. Holding interest rates at zero, quantitative easing is simply another word, a euphemism for debt monetization, which is inflation. And so the Fed is not just standing back and letting inflation ravage the average American. The Fed is ravaging the average American with inflation, and it's about to get a lot worse. If you're finally coming out of your COVID shell, you may feel like you want to take your music with you. Or maybe you're still a little bit apprehensive and feeling anxious and you need some music to soothe your nerves. No matter how you're feeling about getting back out there, there's no denying it's an adjustment process. And when the world gets too loud, sometimes you need to zone out with your own soundtrack by popping in a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds. I've teamed up with Raycon, and as a result, you can now get 15% off your Raycon order at buyraycon.com gold. So if you need that upbeat music to pump you up before you're out and about, or you just need to listen to something relaxing to stay calm, Raycon's got you covered. I know from experience, as does my now eight-year-old son, Preston, Raycon's got exactly what you need, and they're a great way to listen to music. They come with a bunch of gel tips for your comfort, and unlike some of the other brands, they don't stick out of your ears, and they're so easy to use, (laughs) even my eight-year-old son, Preston, can do it. Raycons have a 32-hour battery life, so you can listen to what you want when you want for as long as you want. They start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycon comes with a 40-day happiness guarantee. So what do you got to lose? Give them a try and you'll see what I mean. So create your own soundtrack with a brand new pair of Raycon right now. And our listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash gold. That's buyraycon.com slash gold to save 15% on your entire order. So buy a pair and a spare for a friend. That's buyraycon.com slash gold. You know, ironically, a lot of people are pointing to the infrastructure bill that was just passed by the Senate, $1.2 trillion infrastructure package. And they're also looking at the $3.5 trillion spending bill 
that the Senate has now voted to take up, right? Both of these bills. And I'll talk about that one a bit more in a minute or so. But people are looking at this massive increase in fiscal stimulus. And they're actually saying, okay, this takes the pressure off the Fed to provide monetary stimulus, that they were the only game in town, that it was incumbent on the Fed to stimulate the economy with monetary policy because, you know, we weren't getting any fiscal stimulus from Congress, which, of course, is nonsense in and of itself because we've been getting massive so-called fiscal stimulus. I mean, what do they think $3 trillion budget deficits are? I mean, that's all government spending more than it collects in taxes, the definition of a fiscal stimulus. But this is an even bigger dose of fiscal stimulus. And so people are saying, well, the Fed could take a back seat now. The Fed doesn't have to provide all the monetary stimulus when you got Congress in the game with big fiscal stimulus. And so the Fed is going to withdraw its stimulus because it's not needed anymore. Well, the reality is it's needed more than ever. In fact, not only doesn't this big increase in fiscal stimulus mean that we no longer need monetary stimulus. It means we need monetary stimulus more than ever because how else is this fiscal stimulus going to be paid for? Where is the treasury going to get the money for the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package? Where is it going to get the even greater amount of money for the $3.5 trillion spending bill that's supposed to follow? The answer is from the Fed. So while everybody is selling gold because they expect the Fed to taper its asset purchases, the real threat is that the Fed expands its asset purchases. Even if it tapers them a bit first, Ultimately, they're going way up, just like the Fed started to shrink its balance sheet when it was four and a half trillion and it got down below four trillion. Yet now we're above eight trillion. So even if the Fed manages to begin the taper process, it's never going to end it. And ultimately, it's going to ramp up the size of the program because it is the only way to fund this spending, which, you know, I want to get to the magnitude of these bills. I mean, first of all, there's a lot of Republicans who signed on to the infrastructure bill. I mean, there were some Republicans, I think maybe 30 or so that voted against it. So at least they deserve some kudos for doing that. But those who voted for it, none of those Republicans should be reelected, although the alternative might be a Democrat, although there's, you know, really not much of a difference between a rhino and an actual Democrat. But the Republicans who voted for it, they're claiming that it's paid for because they have these so-called pay-fors that are there. But the pay-fors are a bunch of smoke and mirrors because there's no real money there. I mean, some of the pay-fors, they're saying, well, you know, there's some stimulus money for COVID relief that we appropriated. We haven't spent it yet. So we'll take that money and we'll throw it to infrastructure instead of what we were going to spend it on. But the money hadn't been spent. And so if we're going to spend it now, we're not really paying for it. We could have just left that money alone if we didn't spend it on what we raised it for. And the deficits would have gone down. To come up with another way of spending borrowed money doesn't mean it's paid for. We still borrowed the money in the first place that we didn't use and now we're going to use it. But one of the most ridiculous ways that the Senate hopes to pay for this uh, $1.2 trillion program is they're penciling in $28 billion in extra tax revenue from cryptocurrency traders or hodlers or whoever. Because in the Senate bill is a reporting requirement that is actually potentially very onerous for a lot of the companies that are now operating in the crypto space. But there is going to be a lot more reporting of transactions in cryptocurrency, not just the buying and selling. But when crypto is moving around, there's going to be a lot more reports that are going to be filed with the IRS regarding the beneficial owners of the cryptocurrency so that the IRS can keep better tabs on this cryptocurrency, and more importantly, when crypto is exchanged or sold so they can be informed of the taxable event so that they can then collect taxes. So the government is assuming that these heightened reporting requirements 
are going to bring in $28 billion, right? This is all pie in the sky. They have no idea what, if any money, these higher requirements are going to produce. And of course, a lot of it depends on whether or not there's any profits in cryptocurrency. What if the cryptos crash, right? There may not be any capital gains anymore and they may not get anything. But this is an example of the type of smoke and mirrors that they're claiming pays for the bill. Paying for the bill would be raising taxes, which they're not doing. There's no tax increases or cutting other actual spending. And they're not doing that either. So this is not paid for. Oh, and by the way, you know, the crypto community, this is bad news. I mean, there was some big lobbying to try to get them to soften the language, to narrow the scope of who was required. And ultimately, those efforts failed. And it's amazing that, you know, the cryptocurrencies and some of these crypto stocks, you know, they, they just shrug it off, right? They're going up anyway, even though you have something that is certainly bad news. Now, of course, they maybe think they can get this extracted from the bill before it's ultimately passed. I don't know. It seems like the odds are slim, but I'm sure they're going to try. But the point is, this is a big package that is going to be paid for by inflation. The Fed is going to print the money to do this, and that is going to continue to put more upward pressure on prices. But the bigger problem is what's queued up. This three and a half trillion dollar spending bill, this is something we haven't really seen since the FDR days of the New Deal or the LBJ Great Society programs. This is a huge expansion of the federal welfare state and entitlements. I mean, this bill contains stuff like universal pre-K, free, three and four-year-olds for preschool, now two more years of free education. And of course, free education paid for by the government is some of the most expensive education money can buy. So now we have this brand new entitlement where the federal government is somehow going to be funding preschool for everybody. We're going to have a brand new entitlement to paid family leave, which will be highly abused by many, many families and will end up costing way more than it is budgeted. We also are now going to give everybody two years of free community college. We already have so many people going to college that really shouldn't be there. How many more people are going to go when it's free? And how much more is it going to cost when it's free? Because again, free college will be the most expensive college. And that's exactly what we're going to get. Also, some type of new dental, vision, health benefit packages for Medicare beneficiaries. So we're going to sweeten that pot and we're going to increase the unfunded liabilities of that entitlement program. And if this $3.5 trillion package follows a similar path as all the other big spending bills, it's not going to be $3.5 trillion. It's going to be $7 trillion. It's going to be $10 trillion, right? Everything the government does costs a lot more than they plan because of the moral hazards inherent in the plans themselves. Again, like paid family leave. There's going to be a lot more families who want leave once the benefit is available. They have no idea how much more expensive community college is going to get once the government makes it free. So all this stuff is going to cost much more than they think. And of course, they are going to raise some taxes on the rich, but they're not going to raise anywhere near as much revenue for the same reason. There's the moral hazard. People try to avoid the higher taxes that are imposed. And that's exactly what's going to happen. In fact, they're already talking about pairing the tax hikes on the rich with tax cuts for everybody else. They're not just content not to raise taxes on people who make less than 400000 They actually want to cut them. Now, of course, they're raising the inflation tax, but that's a secret you know, stealth tax. So nobody wants to acknowledge the existence of that tax, but they all want to take credit for some type of tax cut that they want to bake into this cake. And so who knows what the net effect on taxes is going to be if they're cutting taxes for the 99% yet only raising taxes for the 1%. You know, Elizabeth Warren, one of the other ways she wants to squeeze more blood out of the rich is she wants to empower the IRS to do more audits because in her words, she wants to catch all the rich tax cheats. And she thinks there's a lot of extra money there. Well, the reality is most of the tax cheats, they're not rich, right? Because the rich people 
don't have to cheat on their taxes. They can use the loopholes that exist in the law to legally avoid taxes or minimize their taxes. It's the lower and middle income people. It's the self-employed and the small business owners. They don't have the resources to exploit those loopholes. They're the ones that are cheating. A lot of them are cheating because it's the only way to survive. It's the only way to pay their bills, to feed their family, to pay their rent, to keep their small businesses afloat. They cheat, right? There's a lot of people who have cash income that they're not declaring. The super rich don't earn any income in cash, right? It's a lot of the guys in the gig economy or people that, you know, take a side job under the table, These are not rich people. These are people that are barely getting by. And one of the reasons they are getting by is because they're cheating on their taxes. So that's where all the cheating is. It's the middle class, small business owners, right? So ultimately, to the extent that Elizabeth Warren succeeds and we get more money for the IRS to go after tax cheats, the tax cheats they're going after are the average Americans. So don't feel good about this, right? If you're an average American and you think, finally, you know, we're going to sick the IRS on these rich tax cheats, uh-uh, you're sicking the IRS on yourselves, right? It's the middle-class people that think they're going to get the rich. This weapon is going to be turned on them and they're going to end up feeling the wrath of an empowered IRS. But the bottom line is that this new spending bill is going to do substantial damage to an already weak U.S. economy. You know, when we got the New Deal with FDR and the Great Society with LBJ, financially, the country was in much better shape than it is now. I mean, those were big mistakes, but at least we could afford to make them. But because we made those mistakes, we're now broke. And now we're making another mistake from a position of weakness rather than a position of strength. We're no longer the world's biggest creditor. We're the world's biggest debtor. We don't have all the savings. We're not a huge industrial economy with massive exports. We're broke. We're living off borrowed money. We have record deficits, record trade deficits, record budget deficits. We're the world's biggest debtor nation. And now we're adding a huge expensive entitlement that we can't afford. This is going to do far more immediate damage than what we experienced during those prior episodes of grave expansions of government. We're on the cusp of another one right now, but it's coming at a time where the economy is much more vulnerable to the immediate effects of such a mistake. And you're going to see it in the elevated inflation rate. But one of the reasons, too, that the economy is so screwed up is because the Fed has kept interest rates so low for so long and inflated such a massive bubble. That is the other reason that we have such a big problem on the supply front. And this is not something that is going to be solved quickly for those who think that the problem with supply shortages is somehow going to be corrected. It's impossible because the economy doesn't have the productive capacity to do it. We're already seeing that in the trade deficits. But if you look at the effects Fed policy has had on allocation of resources throughout the U.S. economy, we have sent all of our money to the wrong places. We are not investing in plant equipment. You know, you have a lot of people, they look at commodities and they think, oh, the best cure for high prices is high prices. That's true, right? If prices go up, supply comes on stream, people want to take advantage of high prices. But for example, let's take copper, right? If the price of copper goes way up, it's not like you got a bunch of people that have been warehousing copper that they could just start selling it to take advantage of high prices. They got to open up a copper mine. Well, how long does that take? The permitting processes, all the other stuff, the environmental impact studies, raising the money, drilling the mines, exploring all this stuff. I mean, because all the companies that actually produce stuff, that build things, They haven't had any capital. To the extent they've had it, they've paid off debt or maybe they bought back stock. Where is the capital going? It's going to all the momentum companies. Look at all the capital that's been sucked up by cryptocurrency, producing nothing. All of this is at the expense of real wealth, real productive capacity that may have been created with that money. Instead, it was 
misdirected into malinvestment. I mean, look at AMC is a perfect example of a misallocation of resources because AMC stock was pumped up. They were able to sell a bunch of stock and raise a bunch of cash. Well, that cash that AMC has is money that could have been used someplace else because there's not an infinite amount of it. So money is diverted from other companies to AMC. Why? So we can build more movie theaters? We don't need more movie theaters. We already have too many movie theaters. That's obvious. That's one of the reasons that AMC is in so much trouble. The last thing we want is for AMC to get more capital. They should have gone bankrupt. And but for this bubble, they would have gone bankrupt. But now they got a lot of cash. And what idiotic things are they going to do with their cash? Well, there are people that say they should just buy Bitcoin with it because they just announced earlier this week that they're going to start accepting Bitcoin for their ticket sales. Or if you want to buy some popcorn, you can pay with Bitcoin. What nonsense. No one's going to buy popcorn with Bitcoin. And even if they could, it would increase the price of the popcorn too much. What is AMC trying to do? They're trying to get the Bitcoiners and other crypto guys to start buying AMC because now it's a crypto play. In fact, people are already talking about uh, AMC adding Bitcoin to its balance sheet with the money it got by selling its overpriced stock. But the problem is none of this money is adding to our productive capacity. They're not making any products. They're not producing all the stuff that we're importing. I mean, if you look at these massive trade deficits, it's clear what we need more of in this economy. But we're not getting that thanks to the Fed. So not only does the Fed create inflation, but it massively screws up the economy with malinvestment and it allows the U.S. government to get bigger and bigger. We would not even be discussing the infrastructure package, let alone this three and a half trillion dollar spending bill if it wasn't for the Fed's willingness to fund the whole thing. If the Fed made it clear that it's not going to monetize any of this debt, if the Fed was allowing interest rates to go up, we wouldn't be increasing government spending. Politicians would have no choice but to cut government spending, which is exactly what the economy needs. But because of the Fed, the government doesn't do the right thing. It just does even more of the wrong thing. In fact, more evidence of how screwed up the economy is came out today with the better-than-expected 10-year U.S. Treasury auction. A lot of people were happy about the results because there were more bidders. Bid-to-cover ratio was higher than expected. The yield was lower than what they were expecting. And the main reason for this was enormous demand coming from overseas. You had a record 77.2% of the 10-year auction was bought by indirect bidders, which are basically foreigners, whether it's foreign central banks or foreign entities are buying U.S. treasuries. That shows you the degree to which the U.S. is now depending on foreigners to finance these deficits. Now, the initial interpretation is, well, this just shows that there's a lot of confidence in the U.S. economy or confidence in the dollar or U.S. treasuries. Because, hey, you know, people were nervous. Maybe foreign demand for treasuries is going to dry up. Yet here it is as an all-time record high. So I guess there's nothing to be worried about. Well, I would be even more worried. The main reason that you have record foreign participation in our treasury markets is because we have record high trade deficits. So we are sending a record amount of dollars abroad. And so some of those dollars are coming back as loans. So foreigners are recycling their dollar earnings, at least for now, into U.S. treasuries. And so that is temporarily helping to prop up our bond market. But the question is, if we are more dependent than ever right now on foreigners loaning us money, How can we be so sure that they will continue to do this in the future? Maybe they just got so many dollars coming in so quickly, they're just parking them in treasuries for now while they're trying to figure out what they want to do with them. I don't think we're going to be able to live off of this much longer. I think foreigners are going to come to their senses, probably even before Americans do, that this is throwing good money after bad, that this is really throwing money down a rat hole. And 
this demand is going to dry up very quickly. And of course, when it does, the Fed is going to have to step up even quicker to fill that void because all the treasuries that the rest of the world doesn't want to buy or that the rest of the world starts to sell, well, the only buyer is going to be the Fed because Americans don't have the savings. We have some savings now because of all the stimulus money that hasn't been spent, but it is being spent. That's why the trade deficits are soaring. That's why retail spending is as high as it is. And in fact, some Americans have already exhausted their stimulus, and that's why consumer credit is at a record high. But consumers wouldn't be relying on credit if they actually had any savings. But because they don't, they're borrowing. And so they don't have the money to lend to the U.S. government. Meanwhile, U.S. institutions, the bigger money, they don't want any part of U.S. treasuries. Why? Why would they want to settle for a 1% or 2% yield when they're buying these stocks that are going up at the rate they are? There's no real demand in the investment world for these low-yielding treasuries, apart from some hedge funds that have some leverage strategies. Real investment money has no interest in these low yields because they're just not high enough to provide any type of satisfactory return. So even people that should be buying bonds can't afford to buy bonds, and so they're gambling in the stock market. And finally, I want to talk about what's been going on with the price of gold. I mean, I mentioned it a little bit earlier in the podcast in speaking about the reaction to the inflation numbers today. But not only did we have that big sell-off on Friday that I discussed on the podcast that I you know, recorded over the weekend, but we had an even bigger sell-off that Sunday night. In fact, at one point, the price of gold was down, I think about $100 in uh, Australia trading. And that was a big move down. Um, we didn't close on the lows. We paired most of the losses. I think by the time we got into the U.S. market, gold was down about $25. But that spooked a lot of people seeing such a big move. I think it all had to do with technicals because remember when Australia opened up, it was basically almost a $40, $50 gap lower from the decline on Friday based on the better than expected non-far payroll numbers that we had on Friday. And so the market started off on a weak foot. I think that big gap down probably triggered a lot of stops. And then there was very thin trading because Japan was closed. And so that enabled the traders to probably push the market lower to get some stops that were lower down in the market to force even more selling. And so I think it was very technical and maybe is the final shakeout of this decline. We'll see what happens going forward. We've now, I think, with today's gains, recovered all of that $100 drop in the price of gold. And I think some people, some weaker longs, were certainly flushed out of their positions as a result of that. But again, all of this was happening as the price of Bitcoin was rising. And as I'm recording this podcast, Bitcoin is back above 46,000. And so gold's weakness in the face of Bitcoin's strength, again, is causing a lot of people to jump to the erroneous conclusion that it's Bitcoin's strength that is responsible for gold's weakness, that Bitcoin is stealing gold's thunder, that Bitcoin is siphoning in a way demand that otherwise would go to gold. And here we have all this inflation. And the reason that gold is not rising is because we now have a superior alternative in Bitcoin. And as I said, the reason that gold is not rising is because people are not worried about inflation because they're confident the Fed's going to fight it and they don't want to fight the Fed. And so they're not buying gold. The fact that Bitcoin does not trade with gold, that it does not go down when gold goes down, does not go up when gold goes up, because of their absence of any real correlation to gold, to me, that shows that Bitcoin is not digital gold because it doesn't act like gold. It is not being bought and sold as an inflation hedge, as a store of value, or as a safe haven. It is a speculative asset that simply moves based on its own speculators who are buying it for reasons that actually have absolutely nothing to do with inflation or what the Fed is going to do. That may be part of the marketing hype 
surrounding Bitcoin, but it's not part of the trading reality. But what I do believe is happening is it's not that Bitcoin's strength is why gold is weak. I mean, yes, on the margin, I'm sure there are some people who would be buying gold, but who are buying Bitcoin instead. But that's not enough to move the needle on gold. It's too small and the market cap of gold is too large. I think the real big money isn't buying gold or Bitcoin. They don't think there's a need to hedge against inflation or to play it safe. And they don't want to gamble on Bitcoin. They would rather just play in the casino that is the stock market. And so that's where they are. But I do think that whatever demand has been siphoned away from gold to Bitcoin is making a much bigger difference in Bitcoin because Bitcoin has a much smaller market cap and an even smaller float. Because remember, most of the Bitcoin doesn't trade. It's just in the wallets of the whales and it's not there. So a little bit of demand siphoned away from gold can go a long way in the Bitcoin market. And then of course, gold's poor relative performance provides ammunition for the Bitcoin bugs to really pump up Bitcoin. Oh, you see, you see, Bitcoin is what's going up. Bitcoin is working. Gold doesn't work anymore. You know, gold is out. Bitcoin is in. And when you see this supposed evidence to prove this out, this helps the narrative to get more people to buy Bitcoin and to convince those that own Bitcoin not to sell Bitcoin. So that is what is happening. But just as Bitcoin is drawing strength from gold's weakness, I think it will draw weakness from gold's strength, right? You live by the sword, you die by the sword. If Bitcoin is living now by the weakness in gold, it will die by its strength. And gold is going to come back. Once investors recognize the threat that they're oblivious to once they appreciate the box that the Fed has backed us into, once they understand that more fiscal stimulus means more, not less monetary stimulus, once they understand that inflation, which is already bad, is going to get much worse and the Fed's going to do nothing about it, a whole bunch of people who aren't buying any gold are going to be buying it for the first time. A whole bunch of institutions, endowments, pension funds that have no exposure to gold in the mining sector are going to suddenly start adding that exposure to their portfolios. They're going to have no interest in gambling in Bitcoin, but they are going to have an interest in protecting their portfolios and protecting their purchasing power using gold and gold mining stocks. So my advice is don't wait for the big money to figure it out. We already know, but they don't even know they don't know. And so what we want to do is get to where they're going before they even realize that they're headed there. Mm -hmm.